0: All right, let's get started um, this morning. In, in our passage in, in Luke chapter 22, um, we're going we're gonna to start it off. And, and you'll be very surprised this morning, unless you've already looked ahead, that none of the words that we hear this morning uh, are going to be actually, the, the, the what Jesus is going to speak. We've, we've done nothing but teaching of Jesus and teaching of Jesus and teaching of Jesus for, for a couple chapters now. And and now we are getting back into some of the the narrative um, this morning. Um, And yet, even though we don't see uh, Jesus speaking, um, this passage is is actually uh, quite pivotal uh, uh, for us. Because even though Jesus at this point is still freely teaching and preaching around Jerusalem and uh, that the days are being numbered that he will be crucified... In fact, this day is actually now Thursday of, of the Passion Week. And Thursday of the Passion Week leads us up to the up to the Passover, which we will talk about, Lord willing, next week, the Passover, um, and, the, and the Last Supper. Uh, and, and then the next day after that, Jesus is going to be crucified. So these first six verses are going to help us understand how Jesus went from Freely teaching and preaching to, in just 12 hours or so, we'll be arrested. We get to, we'll see how this happens. And um, also the, the shocking results of blindness and false profession and evil and sin of the worst kind uh, in the world. However, even these things are good for us to see. That underneath all the, the evil and wickedness and how evil collaborating together with, with man, underneath it all, we will see the evidence of the sovereign hand of God. So let's look at chapter 22, and let's start reading in verse 1. Luke chapter 22, starting in verse 1. Now the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is also called the Passover. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death, for they feared the people. Then Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and the officers how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of a crowd. And this is the word of the Lord. And may his Holy Spirit move in our hearts to see and to hear his holy, inspired, inerrant word for his glory and our joy. I've heard John Piper say once about the cross That at the cross of Christ was the most most spectacular sin in history ever to take place. The plot, the plan, and the betrayal of the murder of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. You don't get higher than that. In this morning's passage, although we don't get to the act of the crucifixion and eventually uh, this betrayal and such, but here is the plan and how it all went down. And since the fall, since since the fall, sin has manifested its ways itself in many ways. And yet it's it's hard to think what would be most painful and most wicked and most hurtful than betrayal. Betrayal is the experience of when the best things of humanity, such as trust and love and faithfulness, is exploited and taken advantage of. If, if someone doesn't love anyone, if they have no care or consideration of anyone, if they're just judgmental about everyone, they don't trust anyone, then that person would be very difficult to betray. But if you love... And you do trust and you do care then those things are can be exploited and when they are is betrayal and that is a hurt that is deep that is a hurt that is deep And it, it's as deep as death and loss itself because you are losing something betrayal is an unfortunate shared experience and if you've ever been betrayed then you know what I'm talking about. It's one of the most emotionally painful experiences that takes a long time to recover from. It's why forgiveness for some people is almost impossible. Betrayal. And yet, if there's any comforts to those who have been betrayed, to those who have been humiliated, is that we see Jesus Christ himself betrayed. Betrayed by one of his closest friends and disciples, Judas Iscariot. Judas, one of the 12 apostles. One of the 12 that Jesus himself personally chose. Personally chose. Luke chapter 6, you can turn back. He chose. He he spent all night praying. Who would be my disciples? And Judas, along with the others, have followed Jesus throughout his whole earthly ministry. When, 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 When Jesus calmed the sea, when Jesus walked on water, he was there. When he saw forgiveness and restoration of sinners, he was there. He ate with Jesus. He prayed with Jesus. He heard every sermon proclaimed by the Son of God. Judas also performed miracles and proclaimed the kingdom of God himself. Judas Iscariot was not an outsider. He was a disciple, an apostle. We have the benefit ourselves of knowing the whole story from, from the beginning. And the, and the uh, gospel writers actually kind of clue us into the character of, of Judas. But it, at this time, the, the other disciples, they had no clue who Judas was. Judas was one of them. You know who I really feel bad for? You don't even know. The other Judas. Did you know there was another Judas? That was Judas, the son of James. Great, I'm going to have to change my name now. Judas, the son of James, I mean, by default, we have already we've, we forgot about him, and probably because of his name. And we have the benefit of knowing who Judas is and what he will do from the beginning. And yet, throughout the story of the disciples, they had, they had no clue what was happening. But Jesus did. More on that in a minute. So there are all kinds of questions, though, from reading this passage that that can come to mind. Almost kind of like problems that come to mind. Questions like this. Did Satan possess Judas? Did Judas lose his salvation? Or was his profession false? What made Judas do what he did? where was god in all of this why would god allow judas to do this and this morning we're going to unpack some of those questions this morning and i think these questions are very important especially as we are walking through luke's gospel we are coming closer and closer to the cross That we would have a deeper understanding and meaning of what is really happening surrounding, as Piper says, the most spectacular sin ever. So we're going to look at some theological implications of the passage and some practical applications at the end. So the theological implications, we're going to ask two main questions. It takes those questions I asked earlier and puts them into groups. So two really big questions, I think, arise from this passage. Number one... What in the world does it mean for Satan to enter into Judas? What does that mean? And the second question, where was God in all of this? Why did God allow all this evil, including the betrayal by Judas, so that Jesus would be murdered? So the first question, what does Satan enter into? into Judas mean what does this mean so on the day that Jesus was going to take his guys and celebrate the Last Supper with him look what verse 3 says then Satan entered into Judas called Iscariot who was the number of the 12. Now why did Satan enter into Judas? Verse 4, to what end? He went and conferred with the chief priests and the officers how he might betray him to them. Now we know, and if you don't, I'll tell you, that after the Last Supper, Judas does this very thing. They're off alone, which is what the chief priests needed. They needed Jesus to be away from the crowds because he was too popular with the crowds. And this is what Judas excuse me, would provide for them. And as they are in the Garden of Gethsemane that night, he signals to them which one is Jesus with a kiss, which is exactly what takes place. They get what they want. Judas gets what he wants. But what does it mean here though that Satan entered into Judas? That can be quite problematic. What does that mean? Is is it like demon possession, kind of like what we've seen previous uh previous uh, stories or events in Luke's gospel? But with Satan himself? Was Jude, Judas an innocent bystander and, and Satan came upon him to to accomplish his plan? Is that what we're saying? This is why it's problematic. Well, first and foremost, let's let's answer it starting here. The Bible is very clear to us that Judas Iscariot was not an innocent bystander. Judas Iscariot was not an innocent bystander. Nobody twisted his arm. Nobody forced him. Nobody threatened him or, or coerced him. You know, in, in the movies when, when terrorists come in and they kidnap someone off the street and then they threaten them to cooperate with their evil plans or else, that's not what's happening here. That, that's, that's not what's happening here. Judas was the money man of the crew. Judas was in charge of the purse. And and John tells us in John chapter 12, verse 6, that Judas himself would help himself to the money. Meaning he was stealing from everyone. The money that they were gathering to help care for them, and, and maybe that's why there was no room for Jesus anywhere to stay. Jesus had no place to rest his head. Because Judas was stealing the money. And when the money guy... And being the money guy, complained. That notable story when when Mary comes to Jesus, to to anoint Jesus with some very expensive oil, and begins to wash his feet with the oil, and with her tears, and and with her hair, washes his, his feet. We see the money man Judas put on this religious front. Jesus, this could have been better used for the poor. No, more like it could have been better used in your pocket. Mark and Matthew take that event and they put it between the plot and the plight of the chief priests not knowing what to do to kill Jesus. And Judas saying, I'm going to be the one who betrays him. Maybe that was what Judas needed as the justification of what he thought needed to be done with Jesus. Judas was not innocent. Yeah, he, he put on a good front. He fooled the disciples. He had a good religious exterior. He performed religious works in Jesus' name. But the clear picture from Judas, of the scripture of Judas, unfortunately, was that he really did not love Jesus at all, but he loved money. His love was money. And he loved the idea of what Jesus could do for him. That he could make him money or that he could put him in a position to get more money and have more money bags. And when that wasn't happening, and when clearly that was not the objective of Jesus to get money, he betrayed him. To him, the writing was on the wall. Frustrated. Frustrated by everything, he sought out exactly who he could betray Jesus to and make a little coin on the side. So when Satan entered into Judas, we must know that Judas was not innocent. And in fact, what I want to present to you is that when Satan entered in Judas, He wasn't innocent, and therefore we need to know that he was working together. Satan was working together with Judas, with his evil desires, and with his pleasures. His sinful pleasures. That's what Satan was using to accomplish what he wanted to accomplish in the death of Christ. And not to mention that, to feel the pain and the agony and the horror of being betrayed by one of his closest friends. Judas was not innocent. He was given over to his sinful desires, so Satan entered into him so that he would betray Jesus, turning him over to evil men. We use this passage a lot, but turning to Ephesians 2, 1-3, through 3, just totally explains this for us. It helps us understand the, the reality of, of anyone who is unregenerate. Is in cooperation with evil. It says, and you were dead in the trespasses of your sins. Here's our nature. In in our first father, Adam, we are dead in our trespasses and sins. And once, in which you once walked, Doing what? Following the course of this world. Following the prince of the power of the air and the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Right? So this is is what's going on. Verse 3, among whom we all once lived. We all. There's a totality there. We all lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind like the rest of mankind this text not only lays out the depth of our depravity and our natures before Christ but it also tells us of the cooperation that we once lived that cooperation with the as as it says with the world and with the ruler of this world the prince of the power of the air the spirit now at work in the sons of disobedience which is who Satan which is Satan. Judas is not innocent. And this passage also shows us that. Judas is not innocent. And and the unregenerate, unregenerate man is not innocent in their sin because humanity loves the passions of their flesh. They love the passions of their flesh. And the very aim of their lives is to do what Paul says here, to carry out the desires of the body and mind. They love that. That's what the unregenerate man loves. This is what Judas loved. And this is just following the wide stream of the course of this world. Satan was not forcing him to do something against his will. Or does he force anyone else? But he uses those sinful desires and those sinful pleasures that are already there. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 just completely describes what's going down in Judas Iscariot. That even though he was following Jesus externally, And he looked religious. He was still a son of disobedience. Judas may have been with them, but he was never of them. Satan does not enter into innocent people because, as this passage tells us, there is no such thing as innocent people. He used Judas. He used what was already there. What was already controlling him, his sin, his love of money, his fake religion the cover up so that at the right time, Satan could enter into him and collaborate and get him to collaborate with the chief priests and the scribes and the officers and everyone else. And Satan, ever since the temptation of the wilderness, all the way back in Luke chapter 4, I believe, all the way since then, it says that Satan has been looking for an opportunity to go after Jesus again, to derail him from accomplishing his mission. And he was bound and determined to make the cross be as horrific and painful physically and emotionally and as diabolic as possible. And what do we learn from this? What we learn from this is that The weapon of Satan is our sin. The weapon of Satan is our sin, and he brings it against us and others. I'm going to stop there. I'm going to give practical applications in just a minute on that point, but I want to go to the second point. So what does it mean then for Satan to enter into Judas? He uses the sinful desires and sinful pleasures that were already there. That's his weapon against humanity uses that in guilt, he uses that in shame, and he uses it and wields it for his own doing of destruction. So here brings us to the second question. Where was God in all of this? Where was God in all of this? Isn't this the question that we hear quite a bit? Where was God in that? Where is God in this? The world is constantly asking. And, and the, the reality, I think the truth is, is that they really don't want an answer. They may ask the question, where is God in all this? But they really, uh, they really don't want an answer because it's, a, it's actually an accusation against God that, that, that if he is omniscient, if he is omnipotent, and if he is good, then why would he let evil or natural disasters take place? again, to those, they think, people who are innocent. And because of these things, because of these evil things that may happen or natural disasters that, that may happen, if, if, if God is even there and if he allowed these things to happen and if he has the ability to prevent them and to stop them and he doesn't, then therefore he must not be good and not be loving. That's the whole argument. And yet, how does that weigh up? How does that weigh up to the most spectacular sin in the world, ever? Where was God in all of that? Was he a helpless spectator that he's often accused of? Was he even, was he incapable to save his son could he see satan's work in the chief priests and in judas and stop it these are very serious questions and i think such serious questions demand serious answers and serious consideration when questions like this are asked we we should not ever bring opinions to the table no I thinks, no yeah buts. We bring, to, we bring to the table serious answers. Serious answers because serious questions demand. They demand depth. They demand truth. And what they demand is the word of God. So where is God in all of this? Well, the scripture tells us. The scriptures tell us from the very beginning and all the way to the cross, tell us of the events with incredible, actually credible detail, not incredible, that's, that's unbelievable, right? Credible detail. It tells us with, it foretells these events with credible detail. The scripture tells us, That Jesus is going to be rejected. That Jesus is going to be rejected. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Psalm 118, 22. We covered that a couple weeks ago in Luke 20, verse 17. It says that Jesus would be hated. Psalm 35, 19. They hated me without cause. The scriptures foretell that Jesus would be abandoned by all. Zechariah 13.7, strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. When Jesus was on the cross, the prophecy that the Son of Man would be pierced and that none of his bones would be broken was, was absolutely fulfilled. Because he was pierced in his side and they didn't break any of his legs like they did the others that were hanging on the cross that day because he had already died. Thus fulfilling Psalm 34.10. 30, the scriptures also tell us that Jesus would be betrayed by a close friend. That he would be betrayed by a friend for 30 pieces of silver. It tells us these details. Psalm 41.9, Even my close friend, in whom I trust, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. Jeremiah 19-13 tells us about the potter's field that's bought with the price of the 30 pieces of silver. Zechariah 11:12 through 13 points us to the cost of the 30 pieces of silver. And Jesus himself also he, he predicted his death. He told us of that the, the plan of God was for him to that he came to die on the cross and to suffer, to be rejected and would be would rise again. In Luke itself we we've, we've heard it three times already. Luke 9:22, Luke 9:44, Luke 17:25. Jesus Himself knew that this was the sovereign plan of God, and Jesus gives us details, and we'll see that next week. The details, and next week, and the following weeks of the events of the cross that are that are so specific. Details about His betrayal, the one who's dipping His bread in my cup with me will betray me. He talks about His denial. I mean, predicts that the rooster's going to crow three times. Why not ten times? Three times. He predicted once again, showed the necessity of his death when they instituted the Lord's Supper. The Bible is clear. Clear then that God not only had foreknowledge to what would happen, and he did not prevent any of it not the betrayal not the rejection not the abandonment not the flogging not the suffering the embarrassment or the death why because all of it was according to the sovereign will of god the cross didn't just happen because evil was afoot because men had sinful desires for money And for chief chief priests and scribes and officers who were jealous of Jesus and their power and wanted to preserve what they've always known. The cross didn't just happen because Satan wanted Jesus to go away. But it happened because it was not only because it was foretold in God's word, but because it has been God's sovereign will, His divine decree. He ordained it. And everything done to Jesus, this is hard, everything done to Jesus, evil, wicked, sinful. All of it, the Bible is clear, that God himself sovereignly ordained and worked out. And brought these things to pass by his own hand. This is why we read Isaiah 53 this morning. Because behind all the evil against Jesus is the hand of God working out his plan to do what? To bring about salvation. To bring about redemption. And reconciliation. And our justification. The first church believed in this. To their core. That it was the sovereign hand of God that worked through all that evil. To do what? To bring about their salvation. And some of them could have been the very people that were yelling, crucify, 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 and now they're worshiping him. And how do I know this? Because they prayed profoundly in Acts chapter 4 if you want to turn there you can It'll be up on the screen acts chapter 4 verse 27 it says says this in the middle of their prayer for truly in this city that's jerusalem there was gathered together against your holy servant Jesus whom you anointed he's the messiah he uh, both Herod and Pontius Pilate along with the gentiles and the peoples of Israel to do what to do whatever your hand in your plan had predestined to take place. If you're doubting, let it be done. And this is why good theology matters. This is why good theology matters, that even in the most spectacular sin that could ever, the greatest of all evil that could ever take place, that God is sovereign over it. To do whatever his hand and his plan had predestined to take place. And the church prayed this because it was encouraging to them. It was encouraging to them. And that no matter what sin of Judas or the work of Satan, that God was sovereign. God was working in it all. What was meant for evil, God meant for good. And that's not just turning lemons into lemonades because that's what you've been given. That's planting the tree, growing the lemonade, growing the sugar cane, sprouting water from the ground, pouring it in a cup, and giving it all. He's sovereign. It's not an afterthought, but it was his divine plan of love. So, where is God in all this? He's in everything. And we can trust and firmly believe that he was and that he is the main actor in all things. And that God will always, no matter how much we may never know with our limited knowledge, that God is always working everything out for his glory and for our joy. And may we never doubt that, whatever comes our way. Practical applications. First, the theological implications of the passage. We've already got to one big one, and that is the encouragement to us. The encouragement to the first church was to remain steadfast, to pray these great doctrinal things so that we would be steadfast in this life and in the work of the cross, that God was working all things out. But I want to show you three other applications out of these implications. The first is this. Evil can come out of the most unlikely places. This is such an unfortunate point that I have to teach you this morning. And, and, and but I don't really have to teach you, because you know. Evil can come out of the most unlikely places. Right, We we know the chief priests and the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees and Judas, we, we know that these are the, the kind of the bad guys of the text, right of the, of the story. We, we, we know that they are the wolves really in, in, in sheep's clothing, because they present themselves as being externally religious and moral and, and upright. but in their hearts they were far from it. Verse 2 says, the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death. Think of that. And that would be like, and this is an example I read this week, but that would be like saying John Piper and, John, and, and Albert Muller were planning the murder of someone. Think about how devastating that would be, how scandalous that would be, how deceived we would feel, betrayed, and how wrong. How bad things must have been for these religious leaders to be plotting someone's murder. Especially the Son of God. And and maybe it's not too shocking to us, is it? Maybe it's not too shocking to us because we've seen this movie before, over and over and over. Why? Because... Titles and positions, even religious positions, they do not guarantee orthodoxy or prevent blindness from sin. They don't prevent blindness and sin. It just doesn't. You know, just a few months ago, a a well-known pastor and and writer who who I believed and thought was was very like-minded decided to abandon the faith. According to him, he didn't abandon the faith, but he abandoned the faith when he denied orthodoxy and denying Scripture as being the authority in what is right and what is wrong. And oh, he yeah, as a side note, he divorced his wife. And he did it all publicly, as if it was the right thing to do. And when I heard what happened, I was I was stunned because i i I thought highly of this man i i read his books i shared his books with others but again position does not guarantee orthodoxy this past wednesday night we we learned that it was religious leaders priests and bishops that diabolically murdered a forerunner of the Reformation, regardless if whether you believe that person is a heretic or not, whether but you murdered them. like That's got to be wrong. Thou shalt not murder. I don't care how you justify it. And what happens in history happened in the Bible, and it's the same sad old story that still happens today. So if evil can come out of the most likely sources, then brothers and sisters, we must be discerning on what we are listening to and what we are watching. And even if they are quoting Scripture, is it right? The example of the Bereans, man, just kind of come forward in this. Because they looked at the Apostle Paul and they tested him. If they test Paul, you best test me. Because I'm no Paul. Test any minister or preacher to the word of god because evil can come out of the most unlikely sources number two do not be friends with sin last week we heard jesus tell us watch yourselves lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipations and drunkenness, that's, that's sin. That's being weighed down by the sinful pleasures of, of the world, the things that, that weigh us down, things that we desire. Things that we desire. And, and Judas's life, if, if anything, if there's a, a silver lining here, Judas's life is the tragic illustration of someone who made peace and friends with sin. His love was his money, and it owned him. It owned him, and it killed him. It reminds me of John Owen's famous quote, Be killing sin, or it will be killing you. I mean, isn't that Judas Iscariot? Sin is not your friend. And if sin is your friend, then you won't kill it, because who kills their friends? You'll care for it. You'll feed it. You'll hide it. You'll put it in your pocket. You'll you'll hide it away safely. And Judas' life is a reminder that sin is not our friend, but our enemy. In fact, it is the weapon of Satan. It's what he uses to crush us and condemn us and to keep us from Christ. Sin is not our friend. Don't befriend it. Don't keep it in your back pocket. Kill it. And I'm going to show you now, number three, the death blow to sin and the enemy. How do we kill it? Number three, we apply the gospel. You apply the gospel. You see, sin may be the weapon of the enemy. This is very important. It may be the weapon of the enemy. But at the cross... At the cross, Jesus atoned for our sin. He bore in himself the curse of sin, canceling the record of our debt and nailed it to the cross forever. And in doing so, what did he do? This is Colossians 2.15. What did he do? He has now disarmed the enemies. The weapon of the enemy has been broken at the cross. The weapon that killed Jesus that was being wielded against you to kill you. To continue to have you believe that it's your desires, that is your satisfaction and what you should go after most. And following the course of this world, the thing that was being wielded to, to kill you because of God's sovereign grace is no longer deadly to you. It's no longer deadly to you. Yes, we were once enemies, but now we have been brought near. Kill sin by applying the gospel to it. And this is the gospel, that in the cross, sin, the weapon of the enemy, has been broken. He brings nothing before you. Listen to Romans 6, starting in verse 5. For if we have been united with him in Christ, any death like his we shall certainly be united with him in his resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified in order that the body of sin might be brought to what? Nothing. Not halfway, not a six out of ten, but to nothing. Nothing. The body of sin might be brought to nothing so that what? We would no longer be slaves to sin. Now if we've died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once and for all. It's it. It is finished. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Why? Because it's dead to you. You don't have to. Don't submit yourself willingly to it. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God, our bodies, as instruments for his righteousness. For righteousness, excuse me, for sin, listen to this verse, for sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under the law but under grace. Christians, the difference between you and Judah, Judas is that you are no longer slave to your sin. And what Paul was telling us here in Romans 8 later is stop living like it. Stop living like a slave to sin but you have been made alive in Christ. As Christ has been raised from the dead, so have you. You've been made alive with him because you were united with him. So submit yourselves to God. Live in his grace, not under the law. When we willingly submit ourselves into sin, we're giving ourselves over to the curse of the law. But we have been given grace. Judas was a slave, but if you are in Christ, you are a son, and you've died to sin, and you've been made alive in him. No longer in bondage to sin, the effects of sin, do not submit to it any longer. I think we've we've talked about implications, talked about applications, and and now just in a, a response. I think the heart's response in any, of this is, is worship. Worship. Because God, through his son, and in the events leading up to the cross, and on the cross, has showed what? His highest and his deepest love for sinners. His love for you and his love for me. It was all God's plan. It was all God's power. It was all God's hand. And he was doing all these things and working all these things out according to his sovereign will so that his enemies, sinners like us, who were once under the dominion of evil, collaborating together, could be saved. God showed his love toward us that while we were still sinners, betrayers, rejectors, abandoners, that he sent his son to die. He received our punishment and our death and he bore our wrath. So we worship. We worship him in, in spirit and in truth. Not just singing, that's part of it. But worship is the posture of our hearts and our lives. It's the the direction of our, our life and our heart. That whatever we eat and whatever we do and whatever we drink, we do all for the glory of God. Our worship reveals what we love and what we desire. Judas desired money and sinful pleasures of this world more than Christ. And that worship revealed itself. What is your heart's desire, love, and passion? Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for the work of Christ. And we're thankful for your work through all of eternity. This glorious plan for our redemption. What a picture of your grace and love and mercy and kindness where we see magnified and exalted the the holiness of God and the righteousness of God and right along with it is your benevolence and love in your kindness. It all comes together at the cross. So, Lord, let us live in light of that. So, not befriend sin and to worship, and to apply the gospel as it is appropriate. Lord, help us as we respond. May all the things that we say bring glory to your name and bring about encouragement for the body of Christ this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.